How's your uh, not Thanksgiving going? Oh, um, it's going fine actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cold here, and uh, but otherwise, I, I've uh, kind of been preparing for this today. It's a strange to go back and and look at all these things I wrote, uh, hmm. you know, months and months ago. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Try. the problem with books, I guess. It takes so long for them to yeah. get published that you've completely erase them from memory just so, to free up some extra RAM and then you have to go back and reload them. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, the uh, I, even though this was pretty fast it's in the grand scheme of things, I think for actual books because uh, because of how New Discourses was organizing it and uh, and you know organizing it with Amazon and all that, so it's uh, it was pretty fast. But there's still yeah, there's things that I wrote a year ago now that I um, you know. I was just—I was also trying. I've been writing a number of different things. I just wrote a, a an article for uh, the National Association of Scholars, and so I kind of—and then I've written articles over the past year. So I, I tried to go through everything to try to remember, come up with something—you know—things that would summarize yeah. nicely. And well, that, that would, uh, rather than summarizing so much, what's the theme? What what's the general theme of what you're engaged in on this uh project hmm. huh the general theme it's funny the, the themes that come to mind are always these like woke themes like resistance and uh <laughs> <laughs> well i mean when in rome and it's burning <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah i guess i mean resistance pushback mm-hmm. uh that's really what it's uh, that's the theme, ultimately. Speaking of that, and uh, mm. just for the audience's uh, benefit, we'll get into this, but you've just published a book called Counter Craft, and it's incredibly incisive, and it breaks down the things and distills things and sets up the strategies, well, the, the substance of the woke, the strategies of the woke, and then the counters. Um, but because it's kind of a polemic uh, have you uh, invested your attention into war games like uh, Risk or uh, you know uh, Access and Allies or something like that? Do you have a history of of that kind of thinking? Well, uh, very. I mean, I played Risk as a kid, but that's not. Yeah, you'll you'll sense f- from within the book there it's layered with terminology, technical terminology that's military in nature. And also uh, espionage related, and, and that's I, I'm a big espionage fan actually, and so a lot of the, the you know the the initial thoughts about the book and the name and the term and a lot of the terminology comes from espion the espionage literature. John Le Carré I, I like an awful lot, and uh, everything on Netflix that has the title spy in it somewhere I've seen. Hmm. So, so you're more of a Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, rather than a James Bond kind of. Buff. Yeah, obviously, obviously, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Where did that start? Um, that the interest yeah. in that. Yeah, you know, it it, it started by surprise. Uh, one year, I was, I was, we were spending our holidays in Cape Cod, and it was very rainy, and we had a small child. And so we ended up at, uh, I can't remember, Wellfleet maybe, the Wellfleet Library. And, um, you know, I was just kind of perusing, looking through the, the books. And then I saw John Le Carre uh, and, 
And, uh, and then I thought, oh, I've, I've heard of John le Carré. They, it always seemed like the kind of books that would be on your uncle's shelf that were large and that nobody read, but that everybody had. And uh, so I thought I'd, I'd give it a shot. And then ever since then, I, I really, uh, I became quite enamored with... Uh, what, what What's the um, kind of the tone, the tenor and the substance of uh, le Carré and that first book? What drew you into it and engaged you so much in it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the the tenor, the story is uh, like all of John Le Carre's story. There's two or three levels of story that are taking place that aren't revealed until the very end, which I think is typical of of spy novels or of, of mystery novels or detective novels. And um, it's also, I mean, it's also interesting because it's you know those especially those those early books were really um, about what was happening behind the Iron Curtain. And he always had this funny relationship with, because he was a former spy, but he denied it. Or he, you know, he he downplayed his role. So no one really knows what kind of role he had. And he was always cagey and mysterious when he talked about it. But also, you know, it, it seemed like his, his knowledge and insights and the details that he had about spycraft and, uh, or tradecraft as it's often called actually, hmm. um, in the actual espionage literature, um, his his knowledge of it just seemed so uh, profound that it was difficult to imagine that he 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 wouldn't have been involved in it in some way at that time. And so uh, there's, in, I mean, that all those elements, the actual, I really liked the, those kinds of details, the bureaucracy of tradecraft. And how, you know, some things would be marked with a certain stamp, and that would mean that certain people would be allowed to read it and not others. But, you know, on the way to the mailroom, there was always someone who kind of <laughs> peeked in the envelope who wasn't supposed to. And and uh, and so there is that this bureaucracy of, of espionage and, and tradecraft that I always thought was intriguing. And then there's also the stories about the, the, the Iron Curtain itself and what was taking place behind the Iron Curtain and how espionage played out. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of common themes in the espionage stories about uh, the sacrifice of the family for the for the military cause ultimately and that and there's always a mm. character who becomes betrayed in the end by the establishment by the intelligence establishment and that's a that's a very common theme in in his novels and 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 you don't understand that until the very end but then yeah all the stories behind the iron curtain and what life was like and what people had to do and what they didn't do and it um it, it i mean it, it also ties in that element of it ties in a little bit to many of the stories that you hear of people um, who, you know, had grown up behind the Iron Curtain and then who came to the U.S. And often their stories are like, whoa, you know, what's happening now in this woke thing really reminds me an awful lot of what was happening there. And uh, and so that was intriguing to me as, as well, the, the, the relationship between yeah, a totalitarian society, an authoritarian society, and, mm -hmm. and the risks that, that, that we're uh, facing now. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know to what ex to what depth your knowledge is of the history of, just say, the Soviet Union, but um, what we're watching now is the encroachment through our institutions, um, kind of like a, a craft and uh, really strategic, whereas I just suppose, but I don't know, 
uh, that within Soviet Russia, it came from the top down. It was just kind of imposed. And then everybody kind of just, I guess, just naturally adapted to this new totalitarian, authoritarian psychology. Whereas now we're kind of being converted to it rather than it being uh, enforced from the top down. So there's kind of a a way that we get to see it advance in a way that maybe it didn't advance um, or it, it kind of evolved spontaneously in the Soviet Union, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so have you, you know, Rod Dreher? Rod Dreher has an interesting book. Live um, Not By Lies, yeah. Exactly, Live Not By Lies. And so there's a lot of interesting stories in there as well and, and parallels. And, uh, you know, lots of people have, have drawn these comparisons. I think that, I think that's right. Like once the, the revolution was launched, it, they were kind of able to take over the institutions pretty quickly, and then it was imposed from above. And and there is also obviously the risk of making too much of the the connections between those those systems. I, I mean, uh, Rod Dreher talks about soft totalitarianism for a reason. I mean, people aren't being taken out to the woodshed and shot in the middle of the night in front of their families. Like you know, that type of thing is obviously not taking place, luckily. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so there, I mean, the, the parallels, it's more like spooky parallels. It's, it's not, yeah. It, it, yeah. History rhyming or something like yeah. that along those yeah, lines. Exactly. The, um, I like the, uh, what you're bringing up about these stories about, uh, the bureaucracy of it and then somebody being betrayed by the establishment. Is that, uh, just that theme of, is it the true believer that ends up getting, um, you know, beheaded in the end? Is that what a theme that happens? Like somebody who really believes in it is betrayed by the establishment or just a regular player. And I'm just wondering, I'm setting up the stage to see if we can draw a parallel in the betrayal um, within woke uh, spaces, specifically within academic bureaucracies, if that kind of betrayal is happening or is it just a more of a kind of a betrayal of the original founding principles of the institution. Uh, rather than oh, wow. Yeah. That's a, those are, that's a, those are profound lines of thought and questions. The, so the, the betrayal of the, the individual and who gets betrayed in, in the John le Carré stories, it, it's, um, and it's, yeah, if you think about, uh, the spy who came in from the cold, the person who gets betrayed there, he 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 wasn't a hero, really. I mean, he he'd done some good work and he'd done what he was supposed to do, and and in, in some ways, he was discouraged, I think, and and not at the top of his game, and he and he, he wasn't hmm. heroic, really. He was just someone who had done his job over time, and he and he you know done it honorably in a, in, a, in a profession which is sometimes questioned for to the degree to which it's honorable but certainly you know within this this military context and and he was betrayed almost he was almost taken advantage of um, because he wanted to be able to perform a role more heroically and they you know they they played with that and they took advantage of it and then the, in the end he got he was the one who was uh, who was betrayed and so uh, but i don't I, yeah i don't think it's i think there if you're talking about a, a betrayal of 
the the mission of the university, I think that's not wrong. But I wouldn't draw too close a, a parallel with the with um, the characters of the John Le Carré novels. In another weak um, parallel between Soviet um, totalitarianism and what we see as kind of a soft totalitarianism uh, that's spreading through the academy specifically is that it's very obvious uh, or it, it, it's easy to see that the Soviets were really top down. There was a revolution very explicitly. There were leaders that led things very explicitly. There was a central command and it was centralized. The woke craft that I see is puzzlingly decentralized. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? We, we use the, in your book and I myself and James Lindsay have used the metaphor of the virus. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just, it's really odd because it's kind of totalitarian and yet it's not centralized. It's kind of culty, but there's no kind of central leader. Um, what do you think about that? Or what are the, some of the quizzical natures of that that help us kind of understand it better? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, the, there's not like there's a centralized power structure. It is diffuse. And it's difficult to understand who's driving it and why it's being driven. I mean, many people have come up with different. Oh, yeah. And just so that that actual the section in the book, there's a little chapter called the, the woke grand tactic, mm -hmm. um, woke viral infection. That's like directly from 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 James Lindsay. Yeah. You know, after after we first started talking about the book, he suggested adding a, a subsection like that. So that's not it's not mine at all. It really is his. And um but anyhow, just to kind of clarify how, how that ended up in the book. But, uh, I mean, it, it's hard. Many, many people have said this, that the, um, the woke ethos, the woke worldview, fills a role that uh, previously would have been filled, I think, by something like a religion. So as, as we've become so atheistic, we've become so materialist and, um, and you know, there's these kind of Marxist strains which have encouraged uh, both of those things um, over time and, um, and that have kind of attempted to discredit and delegitimize religion. And, and that, I think, has also happened naturally as a function of the advance of science and the scientific method and, um, and and what we've been able to do through technology but it, it's it's hard not to, to see that that's one of the driving forces really that people are all of a sudden in a position where their whole lives they've been told that religion is is ridiculous uh, asinine for ignorance um, and yet these people seem to be drawn to the morality of the woke worldview in, in a way that it's difficult to describe it without having a religious evocation. And I, I, I kind of I talk about that a little bit in the book and the, the woke ethos and the, the fervor with which people seem to believe and adhere to the perspective. You, use, you even use the word zeal. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it, I mean, it is, it is zeal. These people are, 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 are zealous and they have something that they want to do. And even though there is no single person calling the shots, 
it, it does seem to have uh, focused relatively narrowly on a on a small set of principles and ideas and, and axioms that, that lots of people seem to be able to get on board with. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what are some of the key axioms? Well, the big three, as I see them. So, well, you can think about it in, in a few different ways. When when I first was was writing about this stuff. I had been listening to a podcast series, a really interesting podcast series. It was from 1991 and 1992, these lectures of a guy named Arthur F. Holmes. I think that's his name. He was out of Wheaton College. And he, he it was, uh, which was at that time, I imagine it still is, um, a, a liberal college where they teach liberal studies. And, and so they, they have a, um, a, number, a whole a course you know, year-long course dedicated to history of Western philosophy. And that's what this uh, series was about. And so at the beginning, and I think you've been trained similarly, uh, Benjamin, you, um, if you're from the podcast, I've, I've, I've heard you speak in often, you're, you're familiar with uh, philosophical notions, and you have a philosophical perspective often. But so it, it basically from that, when I first started thinking about it, and what one of the reasons why it crystallized with me, um, also, uh, because, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading this literature for a long time, trying to understand it, and uh, which is kind of more easily said than done. And <laughs> but I, I, you know, whatever. I, I, Intentionally I, 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 so, some might yeah. argue. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Many have argued, and I think it's probably uh, not inaccurate. And it ties into one of the, the, the principles that I talk about in the book, which is go unnoticed and, until it's too late. And uh, so you can obfuscate and, and people don't really understand and they don't really notice what's what's going on. But anyhow, all that to say that um, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, breaking down the worldview. And as Holmes was talking about it in terms of metaphysics, epistemology, and then how those kind of flow into your political philosophy. And so that, that first little section is written a little bit like that. And um, and so, but so you know, the big three axioms are um, the uh, that all knowledge is socially constructed. So that's uh, that's 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 Lindsay and or Pluck, Frozen, Lindsay's uh, knowledge principle, and not only is knowledge constructed, but it's constructed in such a way so as to advantage the oppressors um, to the disadvantage of the oppressed. So that's the, the political principle. And then a third principle that I, I kind of I coined is the subject principle. And, and that's that individuals are, are really just a function or primarily a function of their identities. And they, and they behave um, according to their identities. And they, you know, there's only so much control they have over that. And so people themselves, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, serve to to perpetuate these existing power structures. And uh, and there's no so way we, not to. Well, I mean, there's there's sort of a funny thing here because yeah. the the woke, in a way, like the whole story about being woke is being awakened to that particular principle, the subject principle, that we are subject to these things and we have to be aware of it and we have to um, be conscious and then behave differently. So once we have that 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 uh, that identity consciousness or the consciousness of the fact that we have been subjected, then we can we can uh, you know fight against the the structures that exist. And so there's there's a strange thing. Uh, I, I mean, it seems like 
it seems like a strange thing that they're the ones who, who think it's it's so important. Um, but at the same time, it, it's key to their becoming awoken or awoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awoken. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, awoken and being able to to resist. Hashtag yeah, resist. So those, those yeah. yeah, exactly. So those are the big those are the, the three axioms as I see them, and those those kind of blend or they 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 work into the the um, the political philosophy or the or the ethos, which is. Um, well, I don't, I don't know how deep down this rabbit hole we want to go, but if we're thinking about like what the epistemology is and what the metaphysics are of it, that once you, if you have a worldview like that, and, and I talk about this a little bit at the beginning as well, like what does that imply for what the world is really like? And so ultimately, uh, we don't really know very much about what the world's like in theory. Like if you if you look at the, the the knowledge and the political principles, but in reality, with the woke worldview, you have to accept a certain number of things as being real. Like you have to accept that. That groups exist, you have to accept that people exist, you have to accept history. that identities exist. Uh, yeah, history, that's right, history exists. Um, you have to accept that words exist and that language exists and that power structures exist. So there's a whole pile of things that you you have to kind of latch onto as um, as the bedrock of the worldview. And so it's, it's one of these strange... Um, Hmm. Uh, conflicts and contradictions as well within the worldview. Like everything's relative, except for like these uh, these these axioms. Yeah. But um, so yeah. So you have this like world that exists. It's it's pretty crappy. There's um, people who don't have very much agency. They're subject to, to their identities, and they behave in such a way so as to perpetuate existing power structures or just somehow somehow if you're talking about the oppressed class they don't necessarily always not everything they do is perpetuating that sometimes there's like a crying out or some sort of um resistance that that happens within their culture which makes it sacred let's just say Hmm. i'm just reaching for the first thing that comes to mind like rap music is sacred um and to be appropriated by white people is to do violence to this act of resistance, this rap music, which doesn't necessarily perpetuate, but it calls out and it's a part of a cultural resistance to the uh, oppressive power structure of white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the keys to being awoken or to being awake. The, this is uh, all of a sudden you're, you're recognizing, uh, your subject status and breaking out of it. And that's part of the resistance. And that's also part of kind of the the woke ethos, which is that, uh, you know, if you see the world in this way, then you you have a responsibility and an obligation to to fight against it. Mm -hmm. And and fighting against it means, you know, it ends up meaning uh, delegitimizing, overturning, uh, tearing down these structures of oppression. Except for, except for the ones that you believe in that allow you to do that. Like you, there, there's no everything's chaos except for that one point of leverage, which would be your oppressed status or your oppressor status. If you're a woke uh, oppressor who's now prostrating oneself before the ideology. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and also the other things we were talking about before, all these other things that exist, the, the structures and the power and the and the language. And so a lot of a lot of what takes place in these and I think rap is probably you know, a good example of it. It's to the, the, the degree to which that movement, I mean, that that movement, I think, was was quite spontaneous, the whole the rap music movement. But there, you know, there is an appropriation 
uh, foregrounding of of words, of vocabulary, of ways of expressing oneself that were intentionally um, subversive. Subversive, exactly. Yeah, subversive. Which would be um, probably in the form in the content. So with regards to content, a lot of vulgarity uh, would be the easiest thing to point to. And then with regards to the form, this um, overstepping of the bounds uh, from language into music and and turning, just inverting regular music, which would have mostly music with some lyrics. Now Mm. it's mostly lyrics some music. Hmm. I'm, I'm just kind yeah. of throwing that together, yeah, but, sure. but in the form and yeah. the content, there's subversion happening. Or in the critical lens, that's what you would probably draw from that form. Yeah, absolutely. And and then so there's vulgarity for sure, but there's also a lot of words that come as communities where you know rap came from that became popularized and and uh, which people were proud of using. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, you, you can just go to the Urban Dictionary and like half the words in the Ur- Urban Dictionary are, are from, you know, originally from uh, a, sh- uh, a Tupac Shakur song or something, you know, like mm-hmm. not all of them, but, but there, there is an awful lot of, of words that were created, um, appropriated with pride and as part of a, a cultural resistance that I think could be viewed through that lens. Although I don't think I don't think it was as intentional or or, you know, I don't think it was people who'd gone to uh, Harvard Law, who end up became becoming rappers. I think it was, mm. you know, obviously a different type of motivation and, mm-hmm. and spontaneity. Mm-hmm. So, um, wow, <laughs> we're just like shotgunning. <laughs> These different ideas are floating around. Is it too much? Is it no, is no. It, we stay I, yeah. I love it. I'm just um, my brain's just uh, really activated and uh, energized by this. So. So there's the epistemology. One thing that I wanted to speak about, because at the very, very, very end of the book, at the, at the conclusion or even the afterward, you say that this movement you thought came from the 90s. You did more reading. It comes from the 60s. You did more reading. It comes from Hegel. You did more reading. It all, And he said it probably comes all the way back to the Greek skeptics. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable just kind of un- unpacking? What is it about the Greek skeptics and in the philosophical discussion that we're involved in that begins in Athens? What was going on there that, that is being replicated and uh, expressed in the woke movement with the skeptics and then the counter skeptics, which would maybe be Plato, Socrates and Aristotle? Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is not. My expertise and special services. It's okay. So these are anything that I say now is prefaced with that. I have things that I'll say. Hopefully they 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 make sense. Um, but uh, the the first part. I mean, I think the the most. So yeah, just like you're saying. I mean, you start following it back, and how far does it go? I think. I think it really starts with Rousseau. I think that that's the break, and that I mean, it's it's a counter Enlightenment break, um, just as the Enlightenment was getting started. Or I mean, not exactly like a hundred years after it had gotten started, but certainly he was the most the, the most vocal, the most recognized, and the most effective counter Enlightenment thinker that that led to the the um, the forking of, of of the Enlightenment vision, let's say, mm. and. Um, um, so there's a, there's a, I just want to mention one book that I think is really interesting that I, I learned a lot from related to this is um, 
Yuval Levin, not a time to build, but uh, the great debate. And so he looks at Thomas Paine compared to Edmund Burke. And he sees this division in American politics really originating from there, from uh, a conservative compared to a, uh, well, what in, in, in the U.S. We, we call liberal. But um, so anyhow, that's interesting. So uh, yeah. I think Rousseau is, is kind of more on the, the critical path, but it, it's hard not to see some of these ideas going back as far the the, the skeptics and you know the sophists i think almost more than 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 the skeptics mm-hmm. partly because of uh well their their um yeah their 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 metaphysics and the the idea that you know well you can argue anything that you want and uh and you know, there's it's uh reality is created through consensus right which, if you go back to where the sophists were operating, they were operating in, you know, a, a democratic or a, a proto-democratic society where debate decided made the decisions, and so I think that language mm-hmm. and argument had a lot of effect within that society, and so maybe, um, and there's, you know, there's uh, episodes within Plato that go into this, and I'm not a scholar, I'm just kind of pulling things up from my dusty memory, about the sophists being all about power, whereas Plato, or Socrates, through Plato, is trying to make that moral matrix a little bit wider by saying, okay, maybe there is power, but there's also truth, goodness, and beauty, and what are these other things going on? And so maybe the the, the moral hierarchy um, that we see operating within the sophists is what you're seeing rhyming going on over generations being that power is central power is constructed and there's a blank slate and then the culture imprints these uh, systems onto people sorry i know i broke up but no no no, that was fine and i had this thing popped up on my screen so i got distracted just at the very end there yeah no i i think that's right and there's there's also the kind of cynicism of of this of what the sophists or uh the sophists were criticized for being cynical that ultimately you know we're training you so that you can have influence whether or not that influence is is for the right reason and this was just kind of what you were you, Hmm. you were you were alluding to and so i i think there is an an element of that this this um moral relativity and mm-hmm. um and also the, you know argumenting around that and using the, the tools of argumentation and rhetoric actually um to to be able to uh, push a particular viewpoint and not necessarily trying to get to the bottom of things mm. that that's a really good point and you dedicate a significant portion of this book to just going through the different rhetorical um techniques that they use, Mott and Bailey, Mott and Bailey Trojan Horse, you go through the language and um, you just make very explicit um, insofar that that can be explicit and uh, and it's just a snapshot of what's going on right now. And what I've noticed is that they always change their language once a word it gets smoked out, right? Mm-hmm. So within Evergreen, you watch these different words, diversity and inclusion, and then it becomes equity and then becomes inclusive excellence and student yes. success. And so yeah. even though you're, you're pointing to these words, there's probably the techniques beneath those words that uh, people can recognize the pattern, even though the language is going to keep on changing yeah. because they have yeah. to change it. Well, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, the adaptive nature of the, of the language itself. Uh, it's funny because some of the words... 
haven't adapted, like some of the key ones, mm. like the word critical, I think it's it's extraordinary that it hasn't adapted somehow. It, it has remained there for as long, I mean, back until the, the back, you know, at least uh, the new left, that word critical started to become very important. And I, and I thought that people had smoked it out. But it, it um, like hmm. you said, <laughs> I thought that was a good expression, but I still see it being used and people still being duped by it. But the um, there's there's one part of, of the book where I, I, I kind of allude to that, but it, now that you mentioned it, I, I wish I'd spent a little bit more time on it, getting at the dynamic or the mechanism underneath it, because there certainly is something there. And and the way I, I talk about it in the book is is to be on the lookout for these words. So the mm -hmm. second you you hear a word that yeah. um, is used in a context you haven't heard before, and it sounds strange, and it makes you feel uncomfortable, that that's when you should be going, oh, okay, hang on a second, that's, that's a weird way to use that word. And that's exactly how these words become weaponized. Mm. And it's it's those contexts. And so I, there's a, I have, I don't know if you would have seen this part, but I, I kind of go through a series of ways of categorizing what are explicit woke words uh, so that people can identify them. You know, like they, they have X's in them or they, um, <laughs> they're words that, that normally you'd think of as good, but that are, that are used yeah. in an, as though they were negative. And... Uh, and so, but yeah, that mechanism is true. I, I, I'm not sure what the next step is because the words will evolve and mm -hmm. we have to keep an eye on that to make sure that uh, that might be my next blog post. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, so when you're discussing and, and your book is focused on academia, but you can definitely retrofit it to many other institutions. This is an, an institutional disease. It operates and feeds on one of my friends who teaches at the Evergreen State College says that basically anybody with a boss will eventually become woke. There's, there's something about Any, the power Anybody structures. with what, sorry? What anybody with a boss oh, will eventually boss. become woke. Oh, okay. He's really, really cynical because he works at yeah. Evergreen freaking college and he's like yeah. the last man standing, more <laughs> or less. Um, but in in your book, you say, okay, they'll, they'll uh, start to take over these different disciplines or these different departments by uh, advocating for critical uh, rhetoric studies are critical. James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian called out studies as, yeah. as a woke advance. You call out critical something, critical this, critical that. And then you also do something very clever, which is really important that people need to know about, is that within the STEM or the hard science places, they, they can't really do critical engineering or critical physics yet, but they do physics and society, engineering yeah. and society. So they yeah. are, you can always, they always, it's like, it's like they can't help but declare the genus of these new uh, kind of studies or, or these uh, these uh, adaptations that they're put, putting in them, like some sort of tree frog or, or you know, tropical bird. It, 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 they can't help but dress it up with feathers, even by pluralizing words that don't need to be pluralized. I hear that a lot. Societies or community. Yeah. Well, not communities so much, but, you know, rhetorics, you know, or something like histories. And yeah, history. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean... Um, it sounds like what you're saying is it'd be wiser for them just to kind of make the invasion and not announce it. And so if they were more clever, that's what they would do. I think that's a little bit what you're arguing. I, I think that there's something about it where they can't resist doing that. I think that they're, they're in love. They're in love. Basically, it's rhetoric. 
and they're and it it's a, it's a narcissistic rhetoric. So it really adores itself because it's one it's righteous, the cause mm-hmm. is righteous and also it just has to dress up an investment. I don't know why. I think <laughs> I think that they it's not about being clever. I think it's it's about some sort of pride or narcissism or something where they can't resist language. They really love language because language creates reality. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. So, well, so, yeah, I mean, I, th- that's definitely I mean, it's, it's funny because people like us, we often criticize that notion that language creates reality. But I think one thing that we've learned is that it does to a certain like they've been very effective at using language to create reality mm-hmm. and so it's it's that that's a a technique we have to be conscious of and it, and it, it's the preamble to one of the sections is this thing like um take it seriously mm-hmm. and and so it, you know as as i was you know over the course of, of my career and, and my studies i often came across these things and and i was i was confidently dismissive of them thinking oh yeah well that's just kooky talk and it's not going to go anywhere and i'll just do something else and and concentrate on the important things and then i turned around and all of a sudden it had kind of taken over my 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 world so i I think so there there may be a narcissistic aspect to it but i I think there's also uh, the choice of words and the inclusion of words is important from this weaponization perspective, because you, you can't, hmm. you, you you can't really invade a discipline. Um, you can't just go in there uh, into engineering or into computer science, and then all of a sudden, you know, once you're in, you can't just say, okay, uh, no, things are different now. We have to we have to be paying attention to to equity in computer science or in engineering, and and so. I mean, what what I see happening a lot mm-hmm. is that the, these words are, are are put in place, and and this is I mean this is the 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 classic example of the terribly complicatedly named tactic, the reverse Mott and Bailey Trojan horse, but where you have it's like he created a Kama Sutra of social justice <laughs> rhetoric. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Yeah, or maybe um, maybe more like a, a haiku, it's a, <laughs> a social justice haiku. But yeah, anyhow. So you, I mean, you you go in and and uh, you know you you're an adherent to the critical social justice perspective. Uh, you think it would be great if it were in engineering because engineering is is is, is too rules based or, or or too liberal or too inherently racist or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so you want to get in there. You want to be able to start influencing things. And so you propose to someone, oh well, you know, you know, it's really important in engineering. Something that we don't take into consideration enough is the relationship between engineering and society. And so, and then the person who you're talking to, the the dean of your your school or whatever, is like, oh yeah. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. I can't see why that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. And and that's when, like, later on, uh, you know, after you've hired two or three more professors into this new domain, you recognize all of a sudden what society was meant to mean. And it's really society, in this case, becomes weaponized and society is, is having a critical perspective on, on engineering. So uh, society, not as it is, but society as it should be and is, and then changing society and using or submitting all of engineering's uh, capacities and powers to re-engineering society in order to affect the social justice equity agenda. 
Yeah, exactly. So there's all these things that are packed into that one word. But if they if the word hadn't been used in the first place, it wouldn't be able to get weaponized later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's not just a narcissistic thing. Although I think there there is yeah. to a certain extent there is a, a kind of it's a tactical a narcissistic, thing, but also. But there's also glee of being able to force people to use a word they didn't use before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. Uh, you don't break this. Up, you don't. I don't think you bring this up in the book. Um, but just the coercive speech um, or the putting word, uh, the forcing of people to speak these words, especially with the pronouns, is one site of intervention. Um, mm-hmm. Because now there it's not just about declaring your pronouns it's about declaring that you will do what is expected of you in this new world order which is now rearranging the world according to language and the signifier of she and him or her and him or whatever <laughs> no longer no longer point to what they used to point to they now point to something that's completely divorced from what it was and the mm. entire inversion that if you don't think through what those neo pronouns are or just uh, elective gender signifiers if you don't think through the implications of that what you're doing is not just swallowing the ideology whole but you're also mm. You're you're also a part of it now. It's also and becomes you're perpetuating a part, it, and you're perpetuating it. So, yeah, um, it's very uh, insidious, clever, uh, and uh, <laughs> something I just want to do. I, I think about that a lot about being forced yeah. to. No, I agree. I mean, and there is, I mean, and this is a part of a, a power play as well, and this glee of being able to force people mm-hmm. uh, and sanctimony, but, yeah. And sanctimony to force people to do things. I think that's an element of it. But there's also, ah, gosh, what was that making? It was making me think. Oh yeah, there's there's a little subsection in the book called um, "Don't let them use their words," and and it and it ties in this issue. It's a little bit more complicated, but uh, I mean the one that we were just talking about with the, with the pronouns and all that. But in um, but it, not necessarily. But I, often what happens is. Uh, words. They'll try to insert words. Um, into documents, into speeches, into uh, curriculum, syllabuses. Um, oh, the classic one and, and the kind of the, the most powerful one is is inserting the words into uh, hiring descriptions for jobs. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's that. I mean, ultimately, the, the most that's, that's the most effective and powerful move is to be able to hire. Um, a woke professor, mm-hmm. and so, and and one of the mechanisms that that, that uh, is done to do that, or is is to take these words and to put them into uh, strategic locations, so that later on they can be used to justify the hiring of um, of, of critical social justice. That, and also um, with regards to diversity statements, you now get to see if people use the language correctly, if they are actually right. woke. It's it's basically um, kind of like yep. a some sort of seminary thing or sub rosa thing or like drawing a fish in the in the dirt. You know, you can tell the woke by you know now everybody has to write this essay about what you did for diversity and how yep. you write about that will will show 
to what level you're at least and and you we should get into this or at least touch on it you 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 kind of divide the classes of from woke to woke dissident and you yeah. go through all these different uh, categories from true believer to play along believer to whatever i'm just going to go through it so people can mimic yeah. the language and not necessarily perpetuate it but they won't stand in its way right yeah. so and the, well does, do you want me to talk about the, the yeah, different sure. Yeah, yeah. We, so I, I think there's, there's a few. Yeah, there's. At first, I, like, I spent a lot of time trying to think about how to categorize them and along what dimensions, and and I, I didn't, in the end, come up with one that was as elegant as I was hoping. I was hoping to be able to have a nice matrix and be able to put different people on all the different, you know, along the different dimensions, yeah. but it, it didn't quite work out like that. And I ended up with six, and and uh, I think there's, you know, obviously other ones that you could have included, but the the way. The main ones are, so the woke are the people who are initiated and familiar with the critical social justice perspective. So these are people who are trained in, in universities, ultimately, and they adhere to it. So they actually believe it. And those are the true believers, like you called them. And then there's this other category, which stands next to them, and uh, I call them the woke proximate. I, I've also, mm. I just wrote a post where I call them useful geniuses, because they, um, they, they kind of perpetuate the perspective, but they don't really understand it. And often these are people who are trained, uh, that are scientifically trained, so they don't they don't have a philosophical training very much. And um, but they they they're well-meaning people ultimately, right? And and they they care about things like equality and and so when they when they hear these stories coming out from the the, the woke folks about. Um, prescriptions that are useful, like making sure that you cite people according to their skin color. They um, they they think, oh yeah, well you know that makes sense, and um, but they they so they adhere, but they're they they don't really understand. They're not really initiated to the perspective itself. Mm-hmm. And so and that category of people, I think I used to think that they they were they could possibly be turned to become what I call uh, dissidents or latent dissidents. So the latent dissidents are people who who kind of don't know about the perspective. They're not initiated to it, but they don't agree with it either. But they're not actively against it. They just have this intuitive uh, reaction, um, but they they don't try to you know they don't take it any further than that. And then there's mm-hmm. the people who who move into the uh, to the, the the dissident category. They're activated. Activated exactly, yeah. These kinds of you know the the espionage kind, of, and I, I couldn't. Have, I mean, if you if you've, I think I'm sure you've read it closely. So the there are all these. <laughs> I just couldn't help but include these little, uh, you know, uh, what do they call that? Uh, nods to. Uh, yeah, nods and tug, uh, tongue in cheek. Uh, yeah, allusions right. yeah, to yeah, to, yeah. to espionage, but um, and and but another another category I think it's really important is the opportunist. And these 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 are the folks who you know they're they're they don't really adhere to it. It doesn't really matter to them one way or the other. They just want to get the grant, um, but they mm-hmm. don't know what it's about either. And they're in a way they're they're kind of the the ones that can turn things. They can lead to the momentum of the perspective. See, this is the this is um this is a side note, but. I, it's really when when we talk about combating something on a structural level, you need to understand different kind of personality traits and stuff. And there's a um, 
one mode of critique of the woke is to um, compare them to different um, mental disorders, uh, specifically the dark triad with borderline personality, narcissistic personality, Machiavellianism, da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. So with regards to – I think that that's useful, but it's, it, it's not useful unless you're understanding the dynamics of the psychology and then using that to your advantage. Ultimately, that's what you want to do. Not just go around calling everybody crazy, but understand how they're crazy and then flip them – by leaning into them. So with regards to the opportunist, somebody who's kind of cynical or basically Machiavellian, uh, maybe kind of uh, has some sort of a psychopathy or sociopathy, um, if you can incentivize the opportunist, because they're, they're just working purely on self benefit more or less they're saying that woke is the dominant hierarchy or, or is ascendant so might as well play into it and get your own while you're doing that um they're not going to switch until they uh their incentives switch too so you actually have to kind of change the system before you can get them on board or figure out a way for them to exploit the system either to further and quicken its demise as it mm. is by leeching all the resources out of it and uh, depositing them in, in the bank accounts somewhere offshore or wherever or <laughs> um, or showing that there's uh, some sort of other reward by defeating it you know some sort of uh, nominal heroism involved you know Sorry for the yeah. aside, but I'm just no, no. It's not an aside. I think that I think that's right. I I, I don't. I, I think it will be difficult to turn the opportunists as long as the as the incentive structures, like you describe them, are um, pointing in the direction of critical social justice. And that's definitely what you see everywhere in the universities. The, you know, from the funding agencies on down, say. Yeah, you need to adhere. Often, you know, you see these these job descriptions go by that people have to demonstrate commitment, um, adherence, like you know that kind of language, which is really spooky. It is spooky, and it just kind of snuck up on us. I mean, if people, if the academy was demanding adherence to American principles, it would basically be fascist. But this is the same exactly. language. I guess it's not fascist because it's communist, but it's the same sort of openly blatantly uh zealot or or kind of religious like it, it's it's mm-hmm. it's faith it's all faith-based in how you are supposed to adhere to it and proclaim it um it's just odd it's i think he's talked a lot one thing that i think he's described really well is marcuse and repressive tolerance the, the, his uh, Marcuse's repressive tolerance really describes this type of thing that you have one set of rules for the people you don't yeah. agree with and another set of rules for yourselves mm-hmm. and basically anything goes um, for the people who agree with you and have this same uh, ethos and same political project mm-hmm. so calling it hypocrisy doesn't work because it's just blatantly hip- hypocritical but but the uh, its value again and I've described this is that um they can be the victim and the aggressor at the same time, as long as that always mm-hmm. aligns with their ultimate goal. So the only thing that really matters to the movement is the talos or is the end point, which would be when, once yeah. you investigate that, you're like, okay, this is pretty dark stuff. You know, it's, equity actually means the destruction of everything in order for a re- retributive redistribution of power along exactly. the inverted axis of this prior exactly. hierarchy, right? Um, yeah. 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 And, and then, I mean, yeah, you don't have to go far afield historically to, to see not only that it's been tried, you know, not just once, not just twice, but, you know, 
we, we can count them in the last century, I mean, depending on how many you want to count, but, you know, certainly on one or two hands, and they've all had similarly disastrous effects. Yeah, I mean, when when the death count is in the millions, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you supposed yeah. to make of that? And that, and when yeah. when you talk about solutions or counters rather to this, you you, you give a list, and one of the counters you say is the historical example, or how, yeah. how did you phrase that when when you're trying um, to describe you know, uh, or defeat it in conversation? Yeah, bad, I think a bad historical record. I think is how mm-hmm. it's you know, yeah one of the the series of arguments to sow doubt. In, um, in in people who are, um, let's say, susceptible to the um, to the critical social justice perspective. So, speaking of that, how do people recognize those who are activated and want to be actively anti this stuff or anti woke or woke dissidents? How do they? Um, how can they tell who they can pinpoint and begin to work on? Like, who who do you concentrate on turning first? Well, okay. So this is yeah, this is fun. Um, the the first part of that is basically identifying who's woke, because they're they're easier to spot than the people who aren't woke, and, and that has to do partly with the the zeal and the fervor of the movement. They don't try to hide themselves, um, but people who don't agree with it will will tend to be more quiet. So the the first thing to do is to keep an eye out for for who's woke, and and that uh, it's pretty easy to do. I've actually talked to people um, who've read the book and who have used um, kind of some of the techniques and they're like, wow, it's so easy to tell <laughs> who's woke. And, and I'm thinking about it at departmental meetings or at, at, you know, faculty council meetings, all these types of things. It's uh, it, it's pretty easy to identify quickly who's woke. The, the, the question afterwards is, um, where do the other people fall? And so are they opportunists? Or are they, and so the ones you have to spot, you have to try to spot, are the um, the woke dissidents or the the, the those the latent dissidents? The, typically, the the dissidents aren't difficult to spot either, but they you know they uh, they have they're kind of like big mouths and they and they and they're fearless, and they'll they'll, they'll take on anything. And um, mm-hmm. but there's not very many of them. There's uh, there's a lot more of uh, well, they get flushed dissidents. out too. Well, sometimes yeah, exactly they. Um, They've been well, selected out over time too. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's fewer and fewer of them, and uh, but the ones who are, are you know the ones that I'm thinking of that are real uh, uh, woke dissidents are people you know like Gad Sad or, um, or 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 Pedro Domingos. You know these guys haven't really been pushed out yet, and they're they're there, and you can see them. But um, the 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 latent dissidents or like the quiet dissidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, are harder to spot, and uh, they'll tend to speak less. And one of so there's kind of a, a series of, of of different things that I go through. But one is identifying who is woke, um, and then after that, the people who are who could be dissidents are it. So the, one of the elements is what they study or what their their uh, their Focus research on. profile yeah. is, and and uh, typically or primarily. Or um, someone, you know, in the, the, the social sciences, humanities, and uh, what's the third one? The fine arts. They're you know dominant woke. Yeah. And it's, it's so if you you know 
you can you can't really write them off, but there's a high probability that they'll be woke. Well, when when searching for uh, woke dissidents or latent dissidents, it would be either in specifically in the humanities or the fine arts. It would be somebody who would um, be a comedian or cracks jokes, and the people who laugh uh-huh. at the jokes. I think that that would be one tell. And so who who uh, it's the people laughing who are the who are the latent the, the people hidden? who don't suppress their laughter or you know if if somebody tells a joke that's uh, that it's funny meaning that it releases the tension around the hierarchy of this ideology or pokes fun right. at it you know that that's that's the way to dissent within the fine arts is is mockery or oh, iconoclasm okay. basically comedy okay. and iconoclasm and the people who huh. don't actively you know the, the people who get really mad or try to do the canceling you know so you'll know the woke the, by the response to that the more fervent the response and then the the more medium response or the the people who silence themselves or don't have response you don't know them but people who don't mind laughing at that are probably close okay. to the uh you know basically the dissident yeah i can see that i can see that I, i'm not so familiar with with the fine arts and so um but yeah I, I can see that as being a tell for sure and uh so there i mean there, there's 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 a um a disciplinary approach that's one way to kind of start to triage people. And then even within the disciplinary approaches, there's the methodological approaches. So people who are quantitative are less likely to be woke. Why? Um, um, well, I mean, why? I think because um, people who are use quantitative methodologies, they they don't believe that everything is socially constructed. I mean, if you're, you know, you, you can count things and you believe that things exist that you can count and you can, you can, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a scientific metaphysics, if you want, behind the people who use quantitative methods in a way that you don't have of people from the um, the qualitative methods. And and, uh, and, it's, and it's almost more about the, the qualitative side of things, because obviously in the old days, you could be a, a qualitative social sciences, scientist and, and not adhere to um, like a, a, a woke metaphysics, but it seems like that's where it's had the most influence. And so the people who are the who who, who and, and often they actually are, are quite you know I know I don't I, I you know I don't do quantitative research as though quantitative mm-hmm. research was somehow poisoned or there well, it's is, oppressive by its very fact of being invented by white male Western cis heterodoxes exactly you know, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's uh, so that it, so it, in a way, it's kind of like identifying the woke compared to and uh, not being able to identify the ones who aren't woke, but mm-hmm. kind of process of elimination. Yeah. Well, so there's a disagreeableness that you can find in the dissidents and the and the woke. Uh, well, the, the, the either end, there's going to be a disagreeableness within their demeanor. Um, mm-hmm. People who aren't disagreeable, it's harder to tell um, yeah. where they land because you actually have to get them to. Uh, express what they believe. And um, there's different ways of doing that. Over the course of me doing these interviews and investigating this and always asking, well, what makes you resistant to that? It's usually... critical thinking, whatever that means. I don't know exactly what that means, but there's some sort of light in people's eyes in the way that they approach 
uh, data or belief or anything. They, they want to engage with it in a complex way. They don't mind taking things apart. They have the ability to hold more than one perspective without necessarily mm. having cognitive dissonance, which would be not not understanding that you're holding two conflicting things, but able to, you know, devil's advocate things. There's there's other just rhetorical skills or thinking skills that hmm. yeah, uh, those are good. Yeah. form some sort of distance between uh those who just believe or go along with belief and those who want to interact with uh, belief or with with ideas and test things out and not be yeah. afraid to consider other possibilities yeah. instead of having a prejudged conclusion. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. The um, some of the other things that I I'm just trying to remember, there's one about the words that they use. So if if people use the crossover words, it's hard to know where they stand okay. on things. Um, explain the crossover words. This is a really oh, yeah. insightful point that you make. Oh, yeah. So the, yeah, the, the crossover word is a word that has two meanings. Um, and it's a word that is one of the meanings is, is kind of a, uh, a well-understood common definition of a word. So racism is a, is a good example because racism is when you discriminate against someone according to, you know, the color of the skin or their, their race, um, or you, you treat them unequally according to those characteristics. But racism, of course, is, um, well, actually, no, I, I prefer critical. Critical is, is, a, is a better crossover word because of, partly because of the, the discussion we were just having before and, mm -hmm. and critical thinking. So anyhow, it, it's, it's well, a word. And diversity, too, has a there's so there's positive, negative and neutral words, probably. So racism is a crossover word that that's, goes from negative specific to negative general, goes from the individual act of racism to systemic racism. Diversity yeah. starts as a positive side of let's be inclusive, but then eventually exactly. it becomes retributive and equitable or whatever that means yeah and then yeah. A, a neutral term like critical yeah except that no i no i think critical this is critical this is why it's really a good example of a crossover word and why it's one of the most effective is that so the, the characteristics of, of the crossover words is that they're well understood typically for or common definitions uh, they're positive sounding yeah. and they're not overly technical so the so critical is it, mm -hmm. it, um, it especially to academics if you you know you, you train people to be critical thinkers and so being critical is really important and it's really good and um, and so if someone you know when you uh, so yeah so you have these <laughs> that that's what uh, these crossover words have these double meanings so in the case of um, of, of critical, you have the commonly understood meaning, and then you have the woke meaning. And the woke meaning is the, the critical social just uh, perspective, critical social justice perspective meaning, which is, you know, you need to be critical, and by being critical, then you're you're aware, or you adhere to the the three axioms. Uh, that uh, knowledge is socially constructed, and you know, the, those three different things. So that's what critical means. Uh, that's the other side of it. Of the crossover words, so the crossover words are, are all like that. They're words that you could use in regular conversation, and they could just float by. And if you weren't attuned to the perspective, you you wouldn't even notice them. And if you did notice them, then you'd just be like, "Hmm, that's a mm -hmm. weird time to use that word." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, this um, this highlights um, uh, 
a weakness or, or kind of not a hypocrisy, but a failure of social justice, critical social justice, uh, insofar as it's trying to make equity and so far it's trying to include people. It depends so much on high verbal skills and uh, adherence uh, to cues that are incredibly socially complex and, and mm-hmm. all these hints, all this spy stuff. So people with not necessarily low uh, verbal intelligence, but somebody who's more Aspergery or autistic spectrum who really needs these it's interesting, yeah. really uh, solid, stable categories in order to adapt to the social environment is completely disadvantaged by the entire just way that this stuff works. And eventually they, they either get uh, swallowed by it or completely confused by it um, or, you know, kind of shoved out of, of it. And because they, they do all these faux pas, especially with uh, the gender stuff, you know, the, there's a lot of people who have, you know, even just like minor amounts of brain damage with regards to lingual uh, properties, not being able to remember pronouns and stuff. And when you misgender hmm. somebody means the execution of you from a position like the yeah. There, there's very little humanity in this because of the way that it's set up just on a lingual level. Sorry for but another it, aside. Oh, no, no, that's good. And But it reminds me, it came up before I, I was going to mention it, but we, we went off on something else. But I, I've, I've heard situations where it looks like these 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 enforced statements where people have to declare uh, their commitment to uh, uh, div- diversity, equity, and inclusion, that they, they seem to have a strange effect, which is decreasing diversity. Because, because the people who are able to really communicate it well have a very narrow cultural background. And, um, you know, from, first of all, from the right cultural background, but also from the right schools. And and so it, it's having this strange effect that it, it's, um, you know, the effort to enforce diversity might actually be leading to a, a homogeneity. Yeah. So that's a, yeah, another puzzle. The, you, you have a measured uh, ending toward the end. You're, you're not completely blackpilled, but you're very realistic. And you say something to the effect of, okay, here's some tools. You know, here's, here's the way to look at it. Here's the way to see it. Here's what it's doing. And then here's how to counter it if you so desire. And you probably should if you don't want the end result. Uh, but you're, it's not going to happen overnight. This stuff has been going on. And you, you point to Gramsci and the prison notebooks. Gramsci was a uh, he was a communist, an Italian communist. And uh, he expanded communism into the cultural domain, if that's fair to say. That's right. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And then one of his acolytes or uh, cohort people... Uh, Developed the term um, the long march through the institution. So the momentum. I, th- I think of that this. comes uh, that quite comes quite late, right? The long march for institutions. Because I was looking into it, I was curious about that. And I'd, I'd always associated it with Gramsci too. Yeah. And it, it seems to be. Um, or something. I was just looking at that. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's a funny. It's a German name like <laughs> Duschke or something. Rudy yeah. Duschke, and he was a student radical in the 1960s. I think he was the one who used it. But that's the ideas and the, the sentiment. Uh, seem seem to go back to Gramsci and his and his, and his prison notebooks and mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah. I mean, so I'm not noticing. in so far as this is going to take a lot of work, do you think that the alternative would be to let it crash and burn and develop other institutions, or do you think the institutions are salvageable or savable? Oh, I don't I don't know. It's it's. 
I, I don't have a straight answer for it. I, um, I think, so you know, we were talking earlier before about Yuval Levin, and we talked about his book, um, The Great Debate. But he had a, a book, a more recent book, and in fact, I read The Great Debate after having read the, the book that came out afterward called A Time to Build. And and so uh, a lot of, of Levin's work um, is really, you know, the, the Great Debate, I think, was is, is, is an interesting story about his view on things, which is ultimately the, the Burkean... Uh, hmm approach which is you know we have these institutions that exist they've developed over a long time they can be improved we should improve them but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater ultimately and uh, and the thomas Paine, at least you know in the great debate was no 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 we have to like take down the institutions and reform things from the bottom up and so i, I you know I think everybody probably feels, I, I certainly feel from time to time, a, a nihilistic urge to just tear the universities down, let them Disrupt collapse. and dismantle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Disrupt and dismantle. And sometimes it, it seems like that's the only way for a positive solution. But you, it, at the same time, it's difficult to to be criticizing the critical social justice perspective and and then take that approach as well. So I, 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 I intellectually... When I think about it, I feel like, no, no, we have these institutions, you know, they, they've been around for an awful long time. Um, there are problems with them. They change over time. And m my job or my responsibility as someone who's within the institutions is to try to change them from within. And uh, I don't, I, you know, that's how I want to be. I, it's it's not that sometimes I don't just get completely frustrated and think, yeah, we gotta we have to tear them down and start new universities. Because um, sometimes I think that too. <laughs> it's not it's mm -hmm. it's it's not mm -hmm. straightforward. But I think intellectually, where I am is that that's a better role to play. And it's and and Yuval Levin he talks about that too in 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 a time to build that that the responsibility of people is to try to work from the inside and, and, and not to destroy institutions, but to help build them, you know, a mm -hmm. time to build. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like that philosophically and, and theoretically, even though I don't always feel that way when I get up in the morning and, and read uh, my Twitter feed or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, it depends on what side of the bed we wake up on. Like, <laughs> let yeah. the world burn or start to try to salvage, what, be the firefighter or just uh, wait for the earth to reemerge. Or, or maybe maybe the right image is those people in, in Iraq when they're putting out the, the, the fires at the oil um, in the oil fields where they so you know how they put out the, the fire so when um, when Saddam left he set all the the oil wells on fire mm -hmm. and, and so you know how they put them out just th throw bath water and babies on them until no 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 so this is the thing is that you had to they, they went in and then you, they, they put all this dynamite and they'd have this huge explosion that would use up all the oxygen and then they'd stop burning and then they could cap them again and so, anyhow, I was just kind of playing on your your uh, your analogy, or, or uh, uh, that's what uh, I was kind of intimating with regards. Uh, that's what I was kind of intimating with regards to the opportunist. Maybe uh, th there's one way of trying to see. Well, can I change them? I can't really build another incentive structure until we get control of the incentives now with regards to the money. But we can weaponize them to eat up all the oxygen, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you could yeah. use certain yeah. 
people. I mean, this is really this is spycraft. I mean, it gets really cynical where you're like, okay, if we're gonna it, we're gonna have to do some controlled demolition at this point, if if you want to go down that route, and then you're gonna have to kind of ends justify the means to a certain degree in order to. Yeah, so that's what I've. I mean, I've, you know, thinking about these things and and the the counter woolcraft that I suggest is I, I have I, I included the ones that I thought I could justify with your moral with your ethics <laughs> exactly, and especially if you're going to criticize one ethical system, you can't adopt their ethics in your own. And uh, so maybe that's naive, but it. it uh, and, well, you and, do that. You actually, there's one part where, where I, there was one thing where you say adopt the woke terminology in order to uh, counter it later down the road. Like in one section, you talk about adopting the rhetoric, but then putting things in place to counter that. But then you also say that, but now you have that rhetoric in place. Yeah, exactly. So that's that. That was almost cautionary, and it was it was something that um, that James had suggested putting in the book, and and I, I put a cautionary note on it, saying that I've heard that people have done this, and and they they basically, um, they they take advantage of this. I mean, in 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 the particular example, it was, yeah. it was it was a, a department. And they wanted to, I can't remember exactly how it worked, but, but basically they, they, they wanted to have a history of Marxism or something. Yeah. And then the person said, yeah, sure, no problem. And then the, the course was about the history of the atrocities under these Marxist regimes. Or they, they included that, that aspect of the, Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, but the, the cautionary aspect of it is by letting the rest of it go by, then the infrastructure's there. Mm-hmm. And so you can subvert the infrastructure, but the infrastructure is still there. So it, it, to me, it, it's, it's a little bit of a dangerous ploy. Mm. Um, you know, the, the other problem with the, uh, the scale of this problem that we're talking about and the long march through the institutions and how much historical momentum it has is that we can't, even if we wake up tomorrow and we dismantle wokeness from all the institutions, there will be thousands of people out of a job and billions of dollars of resources uh, just open because of the way that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs have swept through the nation. It's a billions-dollar industry. There's so many people that are reliant on that. Short mm-hmm. of as soon as if if we turn the ship around, there's going to be a lot of people that will be dispossessed. All those arts majors, all those critical social justice trainers, like they have no other skill in life other than to promulgate this through through the universities. So w- what do we even do with them? Like, yeah, learn to code. Is that what you say? Just learn to code. I mean, they will be absolutely up in arms. And because they already have a bunch of friends in the New York Times, in these journal things, it's not it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen without like a major pushback on 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 that front. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. It's um, it's embedded and there's momentum. And uh, yeah, definitely. A lot of people rely on it. Yeah. Can I I just want to come back to one thing before about universities Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, tearing down institutions. But there was also one of the things that you mentioned, or maybe I mentioned it was starting other institutions. And so I think that that is an interesting alternative, actually. And you'll so you'll have heard of UATX. And, um, and there's also Ralston College, Mm -hmm. where, um, uh, Blackwood, Stephen Blackwood, who's kind of started a university. And yeah. so one of the things that I, I think is could, because I think there, I think there is a demand for a 
kind of a regular university uh, yeah. you know, with yeah. where people just want to go to school and learn stuff and, and not be yeah. uh, indoctrinated and, and not be uh, yeah. what's the word that they use with the terrorists that um, uh, you know, when they get turned, turned? Ter- yeah. uh, no it's not turned is it is it uh, not activated something like that anyhow um, so students you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't want to have that happen and there's certainly a lot of parents who would like to have their kids go to school and not have them come home at Thanksgiving and and declare that they're going to uh, you know destroy the patriarchy or whatever. The um, so I think that there's there's a demand for that. But one of the one of the, the the problems related to that is how complicated it is to start a university and the incumbents that are there. So basically, all the universities that are there, they're woke, are, are going to make it very difficult for new universities to come and. Uh, and you know, and compete with them ultimately. So it's, it's, uh, that's another it's, angle. It's just like what's playing out in the media space. Whereas uh, you have the mainstream media, and then a lot of people that want something else, and then you have YouTube coming along with exactly. all these independent creators, which are gobbling up. I mean, Rogan blows the pants yeah. off of everybody else with regards to media but then youtube starts to get paid off by the institutions and all of us independent content creators kind of push down yeah. in the algorithm and then msnbc cnn and fox go right back up because yeah. they have so much vested interest already so it's yeah. really uh difficult um unless you uh i, I think uh you start small and you get engaged on a local level or you seek independent minded people. Again, you, you seek people who are comedians, you seek people who uh, are kind of anti uh, anti establishment, even if they work for an uh, establishment, people who are resistant to group thinking and, mm-hmm. um, and finding those within the institutions and also uh, supporting people um, who are creating independent content or who are going out on a limb um, to speak out about this stuff and, and forming safety nets for those who are at threat of getting canceled in order for them to maintain and, and promote good good work or good mm-hmm. content or whatever it is. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, it's really the, the capturing of, of institutions. But I, I, so I think, I mean, Substack, for example, YouTube has, it seems mm-hmm. like there's stuff going on, but I think Substack remains relatively free of a, a lot of uh, those types of uh, incumbent capturing mm-hmm. situations. And, um, and, there appears to be a groundswell of support for people on those. I mean, the, the big ones I can think of are Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, um, uh, Barry, Barry Weiss. Weiss. Yeah, the yeah. big ones. Yeah. 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 And so I think there's hope there. Benjamin this, this Boyce. Tr- James Benjamin, well, I was, I was going to say, I, I didn't want to. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to try to charm the interviewer, but I was, I was thinking it. I was thinking it, and uh, and so I think that there's 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 an interesting kind of disrupt, you know, almost a Schumpeterian, uh, Joseph Schumpeter. He's a, an economist, famous oh. for. Yeah, so his his whole thing was um, a disruptive. No, creative destruction. That's Schumpeter, and and so creative destruction is how capitalism works and how economies work and flourish. Is that you have new ideas, new people come in yeah. to provide, and then they kind of take over yeah. and uh, replaces lots of things, and then eventually they'll get replaced as well. But I think that you know that's a good model to think about for universities for for new media. 
if you, again, there's there's problems with the different metaphors we use with regards to virus, with regards to mental health disorders, and uh, but there's also mm-hmm. positive benefit. The other uh, metaphor that's used is the church metaphor, and if you if you analyze the woke as fulfilling some sort of religious or fulfilling something that religion used to fulfill, once mm-hmm. you pinpoint what is fulfilling, then really the challenge is to do something better or to is to see what the need it's meeting and meet that need better. I mean, that's the capitalist entrepreneurial tactic. That's the creative disruption. You you replace that with something better. And so all, if, if I go far enough, there might be a possibility of replacing social justice or critical social justice in such a way, like swapping out the, the, the gold, you know, like Indiana Jones does with something that's actually gold, taking the crap and replacing with awesome. I totally saw that. (laughs) But if you do that, then all the people who are in these positions of power, they can kind of switch. You allow them to softly switch their allegiance without having to completely sacrifice everything that they spent their their lives on. And they don't have to necessarily sacrifice all this stuff. There might be a small possibility of doing that. I'm I'm just kind of laying the groundwork for a larger question down the road. I don't even know if it's possible, but there might be. But that's what my wife always says, too, because we've had, you know, long, long, long conversations about all this stuff. And she's um, at first it, it's, it's taken years. That's what she's been saying is you have to provide um, a positive sounding alternative. And you, you can't just criticize. You have to find this alternative. And I'm I'm. Uh, I'm not sure what that alternative is. And, and it's also the danger of that, of course, is just replacing one positive sounding but nefarious solution with another one. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I don't know how you, I don't know the best way to do that. But I don't, I don't like either because often, you know, the early postmodernists, they would always, you know, they'd be criticized for this too. Well, you're always criticizing. What are you going to do about it? And they said, well, my job isn't to do anything about it. My job is to criticize it. And so I don't really want to be mm-hmm. that person either, but I, I, I don't have, I'm not sure what the solution is. Yeah, it reminds me of that. Um, it's brought up periodically in culture war discourse where John Stewart owns uh, Tucker Carlson, like 20 years ago or something like that. And, uh, or he goes on Fox and Fox people are like saying, well, he's criticizing Fox for being entertainment, not news. And Fox is like, well, what are you doing? And he's like, well, my job is a comedian. I'm not here to like make the news, even though that's all he did was do political commentary dressed up as news. Right. So yeah, he, yeah. he, and that's I, I thought watched that was, it actually. Yeah. Yeah. He just disowned, he disowned responsibility so he could have his cake and eat it too. You know, yeah. and, and, and I think in, insofar, sorry to go on another tangent, but I think that jo, uh, Tucker Carlson said, oh yeah, that's how I do it. And now he's the better John Stewart than the daily show. His, his yeah. show's better than the daily show. Just with regards, even if you hate him, the, the content that he's producing is much more funny because he's taking, he's going against the establishment in the way that yeah. Stewart did. Even if you yeah. disagreed with Stewart back in the day, they, yeah. they had the upper hand because they're the underdog. Yeah, and the underdog takes uh, that tact and, and could be much more funny and snarky than the uh, one who's in power. Yeah, I mean it's it's just dynamics. so it's so crazy <laughs> to have imagined twenty years ago watching John Stewart that John Stewart was going to be the establishment and the establishment enforcer. You know, it's like it's so weird. I think he <laughs> he might he might not have. I I haven't watched his new special, but definitely Stephen Colbert is yeah, is, Colbert is, in that, yeah. is the torch bringer bear. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, with regards to things that don't have anything to do with social justice and critical social justice, is there something, and I guess you can even go back to spying, um, what's the hobby that you do in the real world that you don't mind like sharing, uh, like a passion project that you have or some sort of place huh. where you seat your attention that's not in this realm? Well, um I'll tell you that so this isn't my day job, right? Like <laughs> this is what I do as a passion and it's not even a passion I chose. It's I feel like it was a passion that was imposed on me. So that I mean if I were to be honest, that's probably the the main passion I've 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 felt in the past uh, few years. But I do have another one that I, maybe your listeners will like. The uh, I um I have a cottage and uh and I like like using a chainsaw and, and clearing brush and woods and, and cutting trees and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Creative destruction. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm allowing the trees to, to prosper more by, by cleaning them up. Huh. You, how, how many acres do you have that you get to tend? Uh, eight acres. Okay. So th- yeah. there's always something to do back there then, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then there's also... Uh, so it's pretty, it's pretty dense woods and, um, and I'm trying to transition the forest to be more a deciduous forest than an evergreen forest because with solar heating, it helps to, uh, in the winter, if you have less deciduous or sorry, if you have more deciduous trees and fewer evergreens, then, then you can get the solar heating be more effective. In, uh, my state, um, it's really difficult to do anything with your land because Washington state is so, uh, lords over anything that's, di- that has like more than three inches of rainwater for more than five days. They call it a, uh, wetlands and then you can't touch it and stuff. So it's really okay. for, oh, wow. yeah, it's very restrictive. much with their property, um, in this area. Yeah, no, we don't have, uh, it's not so, I mean, it's controlled definitely, but it, it's, um, compared to the city, for example, where where I live in the city, if you need to cut a tree down in your backyard, you have to go to city hall, and you know they make you. <laughs> it's a real headache. But it, where uh, where we are in the woods, it's not so. It's not as difficult. And, uh, and yeah, pretty hands off actually. Yeah, wood uh, a fire burning license regularly. They they seem to care more about that than just about anything else. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah. Oh, we you have a license. We just have a with regards to fires. We just have a like period. Or what were they called? Like a burn ban? That's what we have. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, no, we have permits. And you have to, you know, they tell you sometimes, yeah, they're de facto periods when you can't burn, but it's it's mm-hmm. it's seasonal. So it's red, yellow, or blue. Yeah, yeah. If it's blue, then, you know. Fun. Well, Charles, your book is amazing. I'm going to promote the heck out of it. Um, I, it's available on Amazon. Is there other places where it's available right now? No, it's just Amazon. Yeah. This new discourses, I didn't have any say in all that. And so they've been doing it through Amazon and it's available electronically. Kindle, there's a new Kindle version actually that just came out the kind that you can search and change the Mm -hmm. font sizes and everything. And then it's in paperback. It's incredibly uh, useful. I recommend people read it and get two copies and then just kind of very cleverly place a copy within reach of somebody who might want to be a little bit more dissident with regards to this kind of work. (laughs) Well, I've I've got a lot of ideas for for upcoming posts from uh, having talked with you. 
Okay, so um, with regards to that, how do people uh, check up and read up on you and follow you? Oh, well, yes, I'm on Twitter, Woke Dissident on Twitter. I have a, a, a blog that I maintain. It's um, woke-dissident.github.io. Mm. And those, those are the, 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 the you truly things. are STEM. You use a GitHub and not Substack. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been thinking because I started this before Substack had had come out, and I, I think and actually one time I did try, I I moved over to WordPress, and mm. then I I got messages from people saying it was too hard to find articles and this and that and and uh, but I yeah it's not very sophisticated looking. It's really just hand coded HTML. And um, so it's not fancy. And I think I've been thinking, yeah, maybe Substack. I have to, I have to do that. Polish up just a little bit of polish. <laughs> well, th- thank you for your time. Thanks for working on this, and thanking, uh, thanks for the the discourse, the back and forth. It was a really engaging conversation for me. Oh well, thanks for the the great questions. I, I uh, yeah, I I learned a lot, and I, I found it fascinating. Great exchange. I will end <laughs> the recording.